Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hello and welcome to Investment Uncut. And this week we are talking about investing like a private wealth manager. Joining us for that conversation, delighted to welcome Kevin Doran, MD and CIO of AJ Bell. Kevin, welcome. Good to see you. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the show. So, MD and CIO, tell us a bit about what that means on a day-to-day basis. AJ Bell, we help people invest. So I'm CIO for the group. So at a group level, chief investment officer. And then underneath the group structure, there's essentially three subsidiaries. One is our advisor-based platform, that's Invest Center, run by Fergus Lines. One is probably the one that people will be more familiar with is UInvest. That's our direct to consumer platform that's run by Charles. And then the third subsidiary is the investment business. And I'm responsible for running that. Fantastic. Cool. Awesome. We've got a ton of questions we're keen to get into on how you run that investment business. But before we do, Kevin, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we might not find on your CV? You may have already concluded that I'm a geek, but I'm about to confirm I collect historical calculators ranging from like 1960s all the way to present day. Wow. My favorite, which you're bound to ask, is the Texas Instruments BA2 Plus. Well, that's a classic, <laughs> isn't it? That is a well-known classic of the calculator genre. <laughs> And so calculators from the 60s, I literally have no idea what that even looks like. Do you need like a whole room to store your calculators or are they all quite small? It's not quite a Babbage machine, but they will be LED displays rather than LCD. There'll be big buttons with not many functions. It's just maths has always been my thing. I did maths and theoretical physics at uni and kind of got interested in physics thanks to calculators. Long story, not for today. And, And just a quick question then. Does the history of calculators sort of end when the mobile phone came along or do they still exist sort of thing? No, I mean, if you want to be kind of like really arcane about this, the design on the iPhone was stolen from a Braun design in the 1980s. So it was a German calculator as designed by Braun. And Johnny Irons loved this so much that he stole it for the iPhone. Well, there that's something I didn't know. So we've learned something already. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> So, Kevin, if we start now talking about investing, and obviously there's lots of maths in that too, maybe let's start really high level. What's your sort of guiding principles when you're thinking about investment and I guess the offerings that you put forward for clients? I don't want to be cliche, but apologies if I am kind of the single most important thing is acknowledging that time is your biggest ally. So the single biggest thing you have on your side is time. Your biggest kind of foe is costs. You keep costs nice and low. And then kind of underneath that, I would say there's no real magic formula. If you have a consistent set of common sense approach and you apply that consistently over time, that tends to lead to good results. Nice. So that consistency, I suppose, is important for the people that work within your team, but also important for the people that who are your clients effectively. So you're sort of encouraging that consistency with the people who are investing with you as well as your own team. The people who invest with us, We're in a very unique position in society. We get to manage people's probably third most important thing in their life, which is their money. If you ask people to say to them, what's really, really at the core important to you? Money tends to appear in most people's top five and probably in their top three. So we're in a really privileged position. And I think 
as an industry, we've not been great in the past of being completely transparent about what we're doing with your money. So that consistency comes all the way through to knowing before you invest exactly what you expect from us. At the point of investment, you know exactly what you're buying. But more importantly, and again, this is where I think the industry lets itself down, making sure that people know exactly what they're invested in and why, and any changes we make to their portfolio. And that's when you get to see the consistency of approach. So you will see, ah, so this is the core principles that you said before I invested, and I can see them being applied going forward. It's been a recurring theme, this point around time and long time horizons. It's a recurring theme in a lot of our conversations. And I guess one of the, the challenges, I suppose, is sort of, I mean, it's easier said than done, isn't it? Though you find, especially with the sort of the various other timeframes you have in there around people's careers and longevity of that and people, because you're dealing with individual investors as well. So the time they might have their money with you and those sort of things. So, I mean, it's easier said than done, maybe? I think it's easier to not get caught up in the noise, provided you're disciplined and you go into it with your eyes open. The single biggest problem you've got these days, it's become more of a pernicious issue over the past 20 years or so is 24-hour news channels. And as a consequence of that, these people are really trying to make news from noise. Yeah, you you tune into Bloomberg, and I've got friends who work at Bloomberg, but you tune into Bloomberg these days, stocks don't go up or down anymore, they surge or plummet. It's a little bit like when Sky Sports got the hands on the Premier League. It was the biggest game you've ever seen. Be sure to tune in for Southampton versus Leicester on Sunday. It's just noise. And if you can get the big stuff right, Really, really focusing on getting the big stuff right. Time will do the rest for you. What do you put in place to encourage your clients to have that mindset so they can look 24 hours a day at the news and stocks are surging and plummeting? But what sort of things have you guys put in place to encourage that good behavior and looking through the noise? In particular, on the UMS platform, we would characterize we've got three different types of customers. So we've got people who are what we call confident in control. They're typically the people who know what they're going to invest in before they arrive on the site. And they're just looking to implement their portfolio ideas as simply, efficiently, as low cost as possible. But the next two categories are what we call hungry for help, nervous newcomer. And those people, we don't stray into the world of advice, but we do try to ensure that they've got really easy to understand, jargon-free educational resources on the site. So the home page of the site kind of scroll down below like the big headline banners and the first thing you see is educational materials and can you take your journey from there really that's really interesting are you trying to broadly appeal to all those three sort of demographic types or are you able to identify a little bit which one someone's in there's two ways of doing it so we do an annual survey where we ask people to self-identify as one of those categories and then there's as a consequence of that there's certain traits including for example how many times someone logs on on a weekly or daily basis even, how many trades they do on a regular basis, whether they're buying funds versus direct securities, etc., whether they're going overseas versus UK. Certain traits will help you try to identify which audience you're dealing with. And certainly what we've seen in the past five or six years, but in particular during lockdown, actually, there's been a quite a surge in the hungry for help and nervous newcomer. Interesting. That's really interesting. And I suppose... So if I was to ask you, what sort of things do people tend to, I guess, not fully appreciate when they come to investing? Probably that answer is different for the three groups of personas, if you like, that you've just described. Yeah. And, and you could probably best characterize it as your confidence and control will come on and buy direct securities. 
a hungry for help will come on and probably build their own portfolio of funds and a nervous newcomer will come on and buy a product which is essentially a from the fund multi-asset product which is kind of one and done i choose my risk profile i buy the units i walk away okay that's super interesting so your investment process that's working on your side is trying to cater i suppose to the second and the third of those two camps but in slightly different ways so your process is trying to identify funds and portfolios to put up to sort of then cater for the underlying investors. Is that right? Yeah. So if you consider the Hungry for Help, we would build what we call ready-made portfolios, which is a, okay, here's a starter portfolio, a bit like the Carno set, if you like. Here's your starter portfolio. And we've kind of pre-populated it with some funds. So you've got a good diverse kind of asset allocation, geographical mix, et cetera, or themes and trends. And then the portfolio is yours. So that costs you absolutely nothing at all. It's a startup portfolio. And then you can customize that as you become a bit more confident. And then at the far end of the scale, the nervous newcomer, that you would come on, you'd probably be drawn towards our managed funds and their multi-asset risk-rated portfolios, 30 basis points, overall costs. And then you choose balanced adventurous global growth, et cetera. It's a single line, single price fund, away you go and you just get regular updates on what we're doing with your money thereafter. So given the sort of changing trends of the types of people that are investing with you, particularly you said over the last sort of, I guess, 18 months, but generally over time, I guess that changes a bit the expertise you need in-house. How do you kind of make sure you're catering to those different needs over a long time period and sort of testing that position? The investment business is relatively new to AJ about It's four years old since kind of myself and the team came in and set the investment business up. So we brought perhaps a bit more expertise, a bit more resource to the investment research function. But I guess kind of what we brought in particular is the ability to build portfolios rather than just to make individual share or fund recommendations or kind of the big macro picture stuff, what's happened in the G7, what's happened to inflation, what's happened to interest rates, et cetera. So Kevin, obviously, so you've been with AJ Buff for four years, but thinking sort of more long term through your career, what sort of things have you found that sort of work particularly well or work particularly badly during that? What sort of lessons have you learned over time? I think I go back to make sure you get the big picture right. I guess most of the people who listen to this podcast are working in asset managers or have had some association with asset managers. And therefore, we've all sat in that three, four day macro meeting where we talk the pants out of when the Fed are going to change interest rates. Is it going to be in November or is it going to be January? And in the grand scheme of things, no one really cares, <laughs> nor will it matter. And yet, unfortunately, kind of, we've all sat in those meetings which last for eons and have real no major impact on portfolios other than in the micro short term. So I guess the thing is, we really do try to focus on the big stuff. And on top of that, there's no point in talking the pants out of stuff where the market's already discounted it. You know, so I've sat in, again, similar meetings where you bring in your macro research analysts and we sit for days, listen to their views on what's happening in the US, what's happening in Europe, which is all very interesting stuff and kind of is a intellectual tour de force. However, most of the things that these analysts will say are already baked into the market expectations. And so what we've done, particularly at AJ Bell, is we all agreed when we set the business up, we would never sit in those type of meetings again. 
because we all hated being in those meetings in the first place. So our starting position is, what's the market expectations? Because you will only really make any difference to a client's portfolio if you can anticipate change. And it's understanding where the change is coming from and what the catalysts for change are. That's really where we try to focus in. And as a consequence of that, we're certainly more widely read than traditional macro analysts who will probably 10 years ago, they would have focused in purely on macro variables. Perhaps in the last 10 years or so, it's been macro plus geopolitical. But we're much more widely read than that. So history is really important to us. Philosophy, psychology, anthropology, bringing all of these different disciplines together because it's very easy to be concerned about certain macro variables, but you really need to understand people. Let's face it, we're talking about markets here, so you really need to understand people. And history and politics have to be brought alongside economics if you're going to predict change. That's absolutely fascinating. So as a result of that, you're trying to identify sort of themes and drivers for the future that you're looking to sort of position a little bit in line with? It is because I appreciate I'm repeating myself here, but if you can spot the really big changes, I give you a real example. So, for example, if you went to any normal investment management business, they would have an army, a battalion of currency analysts who would be making predictions about short-term fluctuations in currencies and whether your portfolio needs to be hedged or unhedged. But let's face it, in the past 20 years, there's probably been three seismic currency changes. For a UK-based investor, and that was, did you call Brexit, right? Where were you on the day that the Swiss franc was unhinged? And where were you on Black Wednesday? And they're the really three big things that you need to get right. And now, interestingly, like two of the three that I've just mentioned there were government-manipulated currency pegs or currency peg currency systems. So if you're looking for really seismic changes in currency analysis, go and have a look for peg currency pairs and try to understand the mechanism by which that peg will fail because every currency peg fails. Go and understand the mechanisms by which that currency peg is likely to fail. And if you can make those sorts of predictions, that's when you can make a big change in your portfolio. It's quite refreshing, actually, the way that you're describing this and the sort of, because I'm probably not the person that's going to want to sit in a room and speak about currency for days. So I like the approach. And I suppose it focuses your time as well. Really does, because if I went to kind of like the high level of what we're trying to do, we try to deliver simple, transparent, low-cost solutions. And so it's about stripping as much of the cost out of the value chain as possible without sacrificing value itself. So in a previous life, I ran a team of around 50 to 60 analysts in seven countries around Europe. We did research in five different languages. and They were a great team, absolutely fantastic team, full of master's degrees, PhDs, industry experience, an absolute, again, tour the force of real understanding of industries and macro research. But what you tend to find is these people will make calls. Okay, maybe around half or maybe slightly more than half will be right, in which case you're adding a bit of value there. But it's an expensive piece of infrastructure to maintain, to have 50, 60 people who could walk into most industries and secure high five and six-figure salaries. To have that level of infrastructure and then to find that they only add a small bit of alpha and in the event that they generate some alpha, they want huge bonuses. Bringing all of that, and what we said when it came to Asia Bell is we'd strip all of that out so we don't do final mile research. So 
in the investments team, we don't do any individual security selection whatsoever. So I don't need the battalion of kind of sector analysts. I don't need the battalion of individual securities analysis. I don't need the battalion of people who are doing credit research because we outsource it either on a passive basis or to other fund managers ourselves. And I guess that means that one of the biggest investment decisions you are making then is the hire and fire decisions on the managers themselves underneath, right? Which are tricky decisions. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about your decision making around those and particularly tough ones. There's two strands to what we do there. So we have a passive team and you would think that all they do is rank the passive instruments in order of cost and choose the one below its cost. It's a little, but no, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. We kind of put that one aside because probably what you're not interested in for the purposes of this podcast. The active side is very much, again, I go back to what I said before, really trying to determine what is skill and what is luck. And so it's about process-driven performance. Can this fund manager demonstrate a repeatable process which has generated alpha in the past? What's their edge and is their edge sustainable? And as a consequence of that, what we tend to find is our active process when we're choosing active managers, it tends to be qualitative first and then backed up by quantitative data. Is what this person telling us actually manifesting itself in the results? Because there's actually nothing wrong with choosing a underperforming manager, provided that's exactly what you expected them to do. A perfect example in the past 12 months has been the rotation away from growth back to value. Now, if you'd have only chosen the best performance managers the previous five years, your portfolio would have been stuck full of growth fund managers and your performance would look awful right now. Whereas it's really important that you've got that blend of different styles and philosophies within your portfolio, also trying to ensure that you are picking the managers that are delivering alpha, not necessarily all at the same time, but generating alpha over the course of a cycle. And every investment decision we make this goes back to what I said about educating investors. Our starting position, if you're not prepared to invest over the cycle, you're not invested at all. You have to invest over a complete cycle. And that's the kind of minimum time frame in which we make our investment decisions. Do you have a rough conceptual idea of how long that cycle is? I mean, I know it's impossible to answer, but presumably you have to try and educate your clients somehow. So you must try and put a figure on it. So five to six years would be, I appreciate you kind of, we cut interest rates in 2001 and they've not really gone up since. So you could argue we're still in a 20 year cycle and there's no chance of interest rates going up possibly ever because the central banks have painted themselves into a corner on that front. But we would typically define it as cycle to be around five to six years. Kevin, I was really interested in your comments just earlier about having lots of different, I think you said a broad sort of reading from your team. How do you work that through in practice? And we've talked about this sort of thing historically in terms of diversity of thought and that leading to better decision making. But it can, of course, lead there to be, I don't know, sort of difficulties in the team and decisions maybe feel less comfortable, even if they are the better decision to make. And you end up with different characters in the room as a result of choosing lots of different types of people. Have you got any sort of tips on how you then make sure that the decisions that you are making are robust, that everyone's getting their say and that sort of thing? We said this on day one. So when we brought the team together, we had kind of like, here's what we stand for. One of the first things that we put down was we would always have open and honest debates. And so they would always be conducted with respect, but we would always be open and honest with each other. Now, that's not about kind of being aggressive or pernicious just for the sake of it. You ought not to be in the room if you're not willing to express your opinion in that room. 
And we have deliberately built a team with wide-ranging interests, views, worldviews. You couldn't have had a more interesting debate. And we have debates about just about everything in the team. But kind of your, the Brexit debate in particular was one where not stand-up arguments, but the range of opinions was probably not common with what you would have seen in most asset management businesses because, and I'm stereotyping a little bit here myself, but most asset managers were probably on the side of Remain, whereas kind of our team was totally 50-50 split. That is interesting. And do you think that meant you were more open-minded to that as an outcome? I suppose that's the weakness perhaps of more narrow potential viewpoints. The criticism of that would be that people weren't open-minded enough to the outcome that actually happened. Absolutely. And I give credit to some of the guys on the team for being really quite forceful on that, especially when I go back to what I said before, about there's only really been three times you needed to get your currency call right. And Brexit was one of them. Some of the guys were really kind of keen of, even if we don't think the country will vote to exit, there's a tail risk within the currency and it will manifest itself most in the currency. And therefore, let's at least have some hedging positions in currency, if that's the case. Brilliant. I guess over your career so far, have you noticed any particular trends within the, I guess, particularly private investing industry, actually, in terms of, I suppose you said in the last 18 months, you've perhaps seen more of the sort of newcomers, but have you seen any more sort of long-term trends over time? The big one, I don't think it's going to be news to many people, but the biggest trend has absolutely been the switch towards passive investing, which is probably so kind of so banal as to be uninteresting. I think what's Quite interesting is if you went back to mid-80s, mid-90s, balanced portfolios were very de rigueur at that moment in time. And then everyone went single strategy. Whereas I think in the last number of years, balanced mandates, not in an institutional space, but certainly from a retail perspective, balanced mandates of multi-asset portfolios, bonds, equities, geographical-based themes and trends within your portfolio, they are absolutely where the marketplace is. And I guess probably the key to that, you could argue that the key behind the trend towards passives has been the rise of Vanguard in people's mindsets. So they've been absolutely championed the trend towards passives. And also things like products like Life Strategy has spawned a number of similar types of products, our own funds included in that sense, where you've now got investors coming along, particularly those newcomers I mentioned before, who are saying, I know I need to invest, but I have no idea what I'm doing here. And actually, I know I need to invest, but I don't want to be worrying about this and check my portfolio on a day-by-day basis. And so is there a product which delivers a portfolio solution in a box for me? And that's been very much a theme, which I think still has an untold amount of time to run as well. It's really interesting. The trends are passive. I mean, how does that affect your business? I guess, well, you said earlier, you've got a passive business. So Are you trying to be roughly neutral between the two or are you trying to take a view, guide people one way or the other or just ask people to self-select? We're completely agnostic on this. The analogy I often talk about is imagine you invite a plumber around to your house to plumbing your washing machine in your shower and he turns on and he says, sorry, I only do washing machines. (laughs) You'd think he was a pretty bad plumber and we take the same view on asset management. There's more than one discipline and we are here to provide asset management solutions, not kind of bias people in any one way or the other. And I suppose when you have your nervous, were they called nervous newcomers? newcomers. I nearly called them nervous newbies then. (laughs) So they are buying a more sort of solution rather than a fund. So within those solutions, do you offer a purely active solution, a purely passive? 
is that where some of your value comes in in terms of in this particular asset class, passive makes a lot of sense, but there's an element of active in here because we want risk management or whatever the sort of reasoning is. Again, we're agnostic. So we spell out kind of the pros and cons of each and then allow people to make their own decision. What we tend to find is most people go down the passive route though. Although I would venture that that's not necessarily a function of having looked at the arguments for and against and then chosen one. It tends to be that one's demonstrably cheaper and therefore that's the one I'm there for. That's really interesting. In terms of the trends, Kevin, I mean, we've spoken recently to Iona Bain, who's a blogger who writes a lot of content for some millennial investors. So I was wondering if you had any reflections on the sort of shifting generational landscape of your clients and how that's changed. Obviously, the kind of people you're talking to have just changed over time, presumably. We know Iona well, and she writes some great stuff for younger investors. She's been very influential in getting people interested in investments, which is fantastic. Particularly, we go back to what we said at the start of time is your biggest ally. And therefore, the sooner you can start your investment journey, the better it's going to be in the long term. So doing some great work there. Our approach to next generational kind of stuff is is twofold. So on the direct-to-consumer side, which is our UMS platform, what we've got there is the younger investors seem to come on for one of two things at the moment. It either is, I know I need to invest. I want to come on. I want to buy a solution. I want to get on my life. However, in the past 12 months or so, particularly, there's been a rise of kind of like the meme stock investors encouraged by Robinhood, et cetera. Now, one thing I would say is we don't offer leveraged products and we never will. So that's kind of one thing that differentiates AJ Bell from some of the other operators out there. But, you know, we do have some people who've joined the platform in order to trade the game stops and the Nokia's and what have you of this world. The platform is flexible enough to allow them to do that. We'd venture that perhaps the investors who are most likely to stick around will be the first set of investors who come on and bought a solution, kind of just want to invest for the long term. And then on the other side of the business, which is our advised platform, a lot of advisors will have clients, a typical advised clients in their mid-50s, but they will, of course, have kind of like spouses who they may want to hand their wealth onto at some point in the future. And so what we do with the next generation strategy there is, first of all, make sure that you've got the next generation of wrappers available. So do you have a junior SIP? Do you have junior ISIP? Do you have help to buy ISIS available for them, which not all platforms have? And then on top of that, we offer the ability, particularly for advisors, to build smaller portfolios for the next generation of clients and so that they can manage that wealth over time. But millennials, there's a lot of talk of like what's our offering for millennials, but I think the figure is there's less than 50,000 millennials who are millionaires in the UK. So whilst it's, you know, whilst it's an attractive marketplace, and of course, they are your customers of the future, a typical retail customer on UMS platform would be an £80,000 client in total assets because they have the pension with us. Someone who's below the age of 30, that's inevitably going to be typically less than £10,000 of investment. So you're not offering diversified portfolios of meme stocks straight away yet. It's not an option <laughs> we can select. That's the shower we want plumbing for people. <laughs> <laughs> One for the future, maybe. It's an idea. We'll leave it there, maybe. <laughs> So, Kevin, I suppose looking forward, if you're not going to be putting together diversified portfolios of meme stocks, what's on your radar for the next 12 months? What's your sort of biggest excitements or biggest concerns? I think what's really interesting, both on the advised and the direct-to-consumer side, is particularly we're in a world of pension freedoms. 
we've had the investment pathways foisted upon us, which anyone who goes and types in investment pathways, AJ Bell, into Google, will find very quickly what we think about the investment pathways. And so as a consequence of that, we're looking to develop some more kind of suitable solutions for customers, particularly the retail customers, who are entering decumulation, taking income and retirement, trying to help them build their own portfolios, which will produce an income for them on a long-term basis, because it's not as easy as, okay, well, I'm just going to buy an equity income fund as opposed to an equity growth fund. It's not as easy as that. And I don't think people have fully gotten their heads around. Whilst pension freedoms are a wonderful thing, we're massive advocates of it, I don't think people have entirely got their heads around when you were forced to buy an annuity, what you were doing there is you were pooling longevity risk with the rest of society. Whereas when you go into pension drawdowns, you're basically self-insuring yourself against that. And that's something that people kind of really need to get their heads around and think about what their strategy is for managing that risk. It's a lot tougher when government bonds are only yielding 1% or whatever as well, isn't it? We've done a little bit of research ourselves, obviously, around drawdown and completely agree with you. It's a tricky problem, isn't it? But it's only got harder over the last sort of few years. But the numbers that you see are just staggering in terms of the number of people who are approaching that every year. So it's a really relevant problem. That's something that's kind of very much on our radar at the moment. Cool. And in terms of things like general markets and macro things, I mean, from what you're saying, I can maybe anticipate what your answer to a lot of that is, but any macro type stuff in particular that you got your eye on? There's loads of stuff that you have your eye on. The single biggest thing that concerns us is, I kind of alluded to before, is central banks, it feels, have very much painted themselves into a corner when it comes to interest rate setting policy. And particularly now that we're in a kind of heavy deficit and basically, let's face it, the central banks have monetized the government borrowing. Of course, that's not how it's being framed, but that's essentially what's happened. The ability for central banks to put interest rates up is practically zero these days. The economy would fall over, even in the space of 150 basis point interest rate rise anywhere in the world. Developed economies would fall over in an instant. And as a consequence of that, I think looking a little further down the line, we think it's got to the stage now where in the next maybe five to 10 years, we're looking at a change in interest rate setting doctrine. And I wouldn't be surprised if we were sat here in 10 years' time, all central banks will have lost their independence. And you could probably argue that a lot of them have already kind of lost their independence. There is a member of the Treasury sits on the NPC. You look at kind of the, I appreciate Donald Trump's no longer the president, but kind of the way he kind of bullied Jed Powell into setting US interest rate policy. You've effectively a European politician heading up the European Central Bank. And everywhere you look around the globe, you see much more recoalescing of politics and central bank policy to the extent that I think it's only a matter of time before we see politicians take the reins on interest rate setting policy. Interesting. That's a big fundamental change. don't think it does anything to the short end of the curve, but it absolutely plays havoc with inflation expectations. And as a long-term investor, it's relevant. I was going to say, were any particular portfolio consequences of that? So I guess you're saying on the bond side, you don't like long-dated bonds in that world, equities maybe? No, I mean, long-dated bonds, they ought to be sold with a body bag. And the single biggest thing, particularly from a retail perspective, you look at the last 10 years or so, and you've had more and more people using risk-based portfolios, risk-budgeted portfolios. And I think as an industry, we've corralled the most sensitive to risk investors, the cautious and conservative investors, 
we kind of, as an industry, corralled them into bond-heavy portfolios. And the scary thing there is, of course, that 20 years ago, your risk assessment was tick this box, conservative, balanced, or adventurous. These days, it's much more psychologically and psychometrically assessed. And so you've now got data which proves that this client would lose their heads if the portfolio fell by 10%. And we corral them into portfolios which will lose more than 10% in the event of that scenario that I just painted before. That's arguably the industry's next misselling scandal. On that very rosy note, <laughs> I think we're coming to the end of time. So I was keen to know, Kevin, what the one thing is that you want listeners to take away. Focus on the big stuff, particularly the change. If you can anticipate change, you will generate alpha. Nice. Cool. Great advice. Um, Kevin, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? It takes time. <laughs> and I know that's a little trace, but don't be looking to get rich quickly. Just leave compound interest to work its wonders for you. Nice. Short and sweet responses here. I like it. And Kevin, finally, do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Read constantly, widely, constantly, all the time. What we do is mosaic theory. It's taking little bits of information and building a bigger picture from it. And that includes fiction as well as fact. <laughs> Excellent. That's great news. I love fiction. <laughs> yeah, we love a bit of fiction. Anything in particular on your reading list at the moment that's worth shouting out? The Ten Equations That Rule the World is a great book I've read recently. Just finished Sellout, Where It Lands, and stuff that I didn't know about citrus fruit in the process of that. And it was hilariously funny. So just read widely. Anything and everything. It can't help but to shape kind of your worldview. Cool. Couldn't agree more. Well, Kevin, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Been a pleasure. Good to see you both. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. So what a fascinating conversation we had with Kevin Duran at, at AJ Bell. Here to help us debrief on that conversation is a returning guest, Phil Boyle, who's a partner in our investment team and a member of our private wealth team. Phil, welcome. Thanks very much. Nice to see you both again. Hi, Phil. Welcome back. So what are a couple of things that are just standing out to you straight away from that conversation we just had with Kevin? The best thing about the conversation from my perspective was the way the world was split into three different categories. The confident and in control investor, who's the top category, I guess, or the first one. And the second category being those investors who are hungry for help and have a bit of knowledge, I guess, but they want to learn more and move on in the way they manage their assets. And then there's the nervous newcomer. They're a very interesting way to look at the world and a categorization I've not seen before or even probably considered before. But I think that's definitely changed the way I will think of the world in the future. I guess reflecting on the idea of having personas, which I think is probably how I described them back to Kevin, is that something that's fairly common across the private wealth market or is that sort of idea of personas and offering different solutions or different products to those different groups of people relatively unique in your experience? So I think it is unique in my experience because I think in that world, you tend to develop the products and then try and sell them. So you're all, rather than sit back and say, what are my customers like? What are their attributes? AJ Bell seems to go as far as almost categorizing people by the way they behave. Just talking there about products and customers, I suppose we're putting our finger on one of the big differences between private wealth managers and some of the other kind of investors that we've had conversations with, insurance companies, DB pension funds. There's this sense of, are they an asset owner? Are they a product provider? It's kind of halfway in between the two, isn't it? And it also varies depending on what kind of underlying customer they're talking to. 
It does. And in fact, normally that creates a real tension in the discussion, I find. When you look at the world from, I'm going to try and figure out what your needs are, and then I'm going to sit back and figure out the best way to provide it. That seems to me to also be a nice way around all the conflicts of interests as well. And so I didn't get that normal conflict where I thought someone was overselling or someone was over pushing an idea, where trying to get an idea into a hole that didn't really fit. I didn't get any of that in the discussion. I thought it was very clear. You can almost categorize the things that were said. So for the confidence and in control, Kevin acted like a consultant, I thought, and he came up with ideas and wisdom like time and compound interest are your friends. That's a pure consultancy thing. Uh, there's no magic formula. He said, you've got to have consistency of approach. That almost sounded like one of our partners, Ken Willis, speaking. <laughs> Ken says his biggest job as a consultant is getting people to make up their minds and then not change them afterwards. That sounds like the same kind of story, really. And the idea that it's all about there's so much noise and there's no news out there. For the hungry for help, you've got to be a little bit more like an investment manager and sell an investment philosophy and sell ideas. And if you think about that, Kevin was talking about things like mosaic theory, a little bit of everything, which very much appealed to you, Dan. I think that's kind of your philosophy as well. He talked very much about the real trick to investments is figuring out what's already priced into the market and then figuring out how that's going to change. It's such a simple idea and everyone knows it, but hardly anyone actually lives it because we all go with the change, not the change relative to what everyone expected. So I guess just reflecting on those three groups and the different offerings for the three groups of people, I suppose it's just back to what you said earlier, Phil, about there usually being a tension between the three, because actually you have to wear a relatively different hat when you're speaking to each of those three groups of customers, don't you? Yeah, and I was wondering why there's a tension, because if you do split the world into those three different people, those three different groups, then where does the tension come from? And I suspect the tension really comes from the fact that you're trying to push people to stay in one of the groups because you might make more money in that group from that group. That's where the tension really comes from. The tension doesn't come from the fact that those groups exist. It comes from the fact that you don't allow people to pass freely from one group to the next and offer them the different services and the different products that they need. That's really when the tension goes. If you're trying to corral people and make them stay in the profitable box for you, then that's where the tension comes from, I suspect. I don't know. We're not talking practically. We're talking a little bit theoretical. But five minutes ago, I didn't even know these three different categories exist. Now I'm theorizing as to where how they relate to different <laughs> <laughs> But that's the sign of a good idea, I think, because it fits the data very nicely. And this whole narrative around there's no magic formula, get the basics right and keep costs low. It's sort of an anti-complexity narrative, if you like. For me, that feels quite consistent with where a lot of this industry has sort of gone over the last five years and maybe a pushback against some of the complexity that had been bubbling up for maybe the 10 years before that. How do you see that, that whole sort of debate about complexity, Phil? I totally agree. I mean, as an investment consultant, we have our feet in both worlds, really. We have meetings with clients where we're trying to take all the steam and heat out of the issues and make the world look understandable and usable. But then when you're in the room with investment managers, they want to talk about duration of liabilities, leptocurtic distributions, and acronyms and complexity. And this was a nice conversation in that everything was understandable, everything was straightforward. This is all about demystifying the world and making it usable rather than saying, look how clever we are, trust us. You don't have to understand what's happening under the bonnet. Here, this was saying what's under the bonnet is not that complicated. It's just a, a little matter of time and compound interest. 
And one of the other things, I think it's very much consistent with what we've just been saying. One of the other sort of, I guess, trends that Kevin's noticed over time, we had both the move towards sort of portfolio solutions and also the move towards passive, which we've just mentioned just earlier. Are those two trends reflective of the whole market, Phil, in your experience? It's both reflective of the way the market is heading. In my world, it's also reflective of the way the market absolutely had to move. All the work I've done has pointed to the fact that you've got to take an extremely sharp knife to any costs. Costs are the real enemy when it comes to planning for your retirement. I'm a bit of a fan of passive investments anyway and have been for a, a very long time. I do actually believe in active management. I do believe there are active managers out there who can really, really add value. I just believe they're so hard to find. It's not worth the trouble. So it's best to just stick with passive and keep things really simple. That is definitely the trend, and that's exactly how things should be. Changing tack slightly. So this, this big risk that Kevin talked about, I thought was super interesting. The idea that central banks becoming more political, potentially less independent, higher inflation, it seems like that's a fair sort of observation. And how are you sort of seeing that, Phil, in terms of what it means for the world, for economics and portfolios and that sort of stuff? What do you think about that idea? I thought that was a nice little step backwards from the problem because there's lots of articles at the moment. If you Google inflation risk, you'll find lots of articles at the moment which are pointing towards the fact that inflation is a real risk in the future. In fact, if you look at buying inflation protection, I looked at just a couple of days ago for someone, and I looked up the 30-year swaps market, and the price of inflation in that 30-year swaps market has changed very dramatically. Well, I say dramatically, like 0.2%. That's dramatic in the inflation world over a relatively short period of time. So everyone's talking about inflation risks. And the market is starting to price in those inflation risks, that's for sure. But I've not seen many people take a step back and say, what's really causing those inflation risks? I thought his diagnosis was a pretty good one, actually. There aren't any easy solutions. It's not a particularly easy nut to crack that one. I've seen even cryptocurrencies being touted as one way of hedging inflation risk. Certainly gold is the traditional one. Super long-dated index link gilts. For me, there's real assets, there's property, there's income strips attached with ground rents. There are some sources of inflation that you can go hunting for. But I think the main issue is that the hunt is more important now than ever. And of course, you can always, for some investors, you can directly buy inflation protection. Although we're talking here about the private wealth world where that's not really, you don't tend to go playing in the derivatives markets. I suppose it is interesting as well, because for individual investors, many people will also own a home. So you kind of have a foot in the property market in a sense. It's just not what you're investing via this platform. That is very true. And in the traditional private wealth world, your two biggest assets, for most people who are listening, if they're in the private wealth world and they're listening to this, their two biggest assets will be, one, the house they own, and the second one is all the income they haven't earned yet in the future. They're by far their two biggest assets, and both of those have really good inflation protection. So perhaps for our audience, we're worrying about something that may not impact on them so enormously. But if inflation really does take off, then actually there are more risks than just inflation. There are risks of that if interest rates do take off, I'm older than you. So I remember when my mortgage interest rate was 17%. I mean, I think you're used now to two or three. That is the real risk here is that central banks are let loose and central banks do start raising interest rates to control inflation. Eventually, they may well have to. And that's the real danger. One other angle on inflation, Phil, is some of the work we've done looking at people who are retiring with a pot of money and trying to manage their retirement from that. Obviously, inflation, a huge factor in that. 
it's making it much less sustainable, making some of these retirement pots much less sustainable, just simply because of the way sort of the real value gets eaten away through time. I know, and you and I have done lots of work on this, Dan, and we know there's almost like a double whammy now. You've got the curse of low interest rates, which is squashing the returns out of people's investment portfolios. And then you've got the problems of increasing inflation as well, pushing up the demands you're making on those assets. It's Sorry, this is at risk of becoming quite depressing, this discussion. But yes, enormous forces at work here and enormous pressures on people who have all these new freedoms, of course, but it just becomes quite difficult to use them. So plenty of challenges ahead then, but I'm sure private wealth managers are equal to the task and have some great investment solutions to offer their clients going forward. Super. Well, Phil, thanks so much for that little debrief on that discussion. Been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Otherwise, see you again next week for another discussion. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.